All right, we're going to be in 1 John 5, um, verses 4 through 12. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son and has, has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, man. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Um, after that introduction, I'm like, I'm just going to play that back whenever I'm down about myself, you know? And she's like, I am okay. I am loved and good at life. Um, this is my second time being here sharing, and I have the same feeling in my stomach that I had last time, like, not nervousness. What's up, bro? Oh, praise God. Uh, but just, like, joy. <laughs> and uh, you guys are, like, secretly a Holy Ghost church. I don't know if you know that, but anyways, it's good. So, uh, yeah, undercover, but, like, for real, though, you know? Um, so my name is David, as she said. My, my wife, Candace, and I, that's my beautiful wife, Candace, pregnant with my third child. It's insane. Um, we are, we're at Park Hill right now, work at Park Hill. Um, we're actually planting a church out of Park Hill, uh, at Easter, Easter 2024. So we're kind of in the process of, uh, planting a church, ideally here in mid city, maybe a little bit more South, Southeast, but we will literally be your neighbors soon. So, um, pray for us. If you want to snap that QR code, you can learn how to pray for us and partner with us and, um, get a monthly newsletter that just shares what we're, what we're doing as we make that transition. God is so funny because we were originally going to plant uh, 2025, and then the Wickhams asked us to plant 2024, and we prayed, prayed, prayed. We're like, all right, God, we feel you say yes on this, so we said yes, and then like six weeks later found out we were pregnant, and we were like, oh man, what an insane journey this is going to be. So all the prayer, uh, we'll take it. Um, but enough about that. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, you guys, as a church, at Neighbors, you're going through John's letters in your pursuit of becoming a community of love. I love that video that you guys just posted on Instagram about becoming this community of love and how we're being formed into that through relationship with the triune God. Because it's not any type of love that we're becoming, but the others-oriented, self-giving love that flows from the triune life of Father, Spirit, and Son. 
And at the center of that experience, of our experience of God's love, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so this section of the letter uh, that John is writing is all about belief in or embracing Jesus as the Son of God. It's about faith in him as he really is, that God sent his son. I came down in the form of a flesh and blood human to be with us, to rescue us, and to make us like him. Amen? That's the gospel, and, and this is what John is fighting for in this, in this passage. And our understanding of reality seems to hinge on Jesus' journey from heaven and to the cross. God becoming human in Jesus is the great mystery of our Christian faith, but it's actually the great victory of the Christian faith. Why? Well, uh, I have this image that my brother Aaron, Aaron, Jared, and Aaron, or Aaron, Jared, and Aaron, whichever way you want to do it. Um, the, this is like the first Bible project picture that they ever put out, I think. It's like super old. But why is it important, this idea of Jesus going to the cross, this, this idea of our journey, of our understanding of God's love centering around the humanness of Jesus. Well, in the beginning, you see the image on the left, heaven and earth were one place. They overlapped, they intersected. Humans were created for union and unity with God, but we rejected God, rebelled against him, and chose to, to walk away from God. So you get this thing where Heaven and earth, they still touch, but they're not, like human relationship with God is not what it could be, what it should be. Uh, there's overlap, but there's distance. And yet in Jesus, when he came back, fully divine, fully human, he's bringing new heaven and new earth. He's bringing the end reality where it's once again, unity and union between God and his creatures. He's bringing that in his own body, in his own flesh, made possible through the cross. And so this is what we believe, that we are created to be with God forever in unity and union with him. For those who believe in Jesus, this fellowship that we're working towards will last forever. But the way we get there is not simply believing that Jesus existed, but it's belief in him as the son of God. It's a particular kind of belief. It's believing and trusting in the special claims he makes about himself through his own words and through the scripture. And this can all be summarized in Jesus' claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So today, what we're gonna look at in kind of three parts, we'll see how belief in Jesus as he truly is, as the son of God, how it leads to victory, how it's built on reliable testimony, and ultimately how it grants us eternal life. And the first thing we're going to look at is faith in Jesus or belief in Jesus that leads to victory. Now, some of you guys know this. We, we live in a Christian culture where this reality of victory in Christ has been abused and distorted, Right? Uh, some of us come from church cultures, myself included, where the unspoken rule is if something's going on in your life and it's not, you're not getting healed or you're not experiencing breakthrough, the unspoken secret in the room is that you just don't have enough faith and that's why this is happening. Has anyone else ever experienced that or felt that kind of like pressure? Yeah. And these are often things that are outside of our control. Like we can't even control them if we wanted. We need God to move. These are false definitions of victory. And while false definitions of victory through faith, faith in Christ can hurt us, we also don't want to swing so far to the other side where we ignore or underemphasize this very significant theme in Scripture. 
Like we actually do have victory in Christ. We just need to define what it looks like. One pastor of a church I used to go to, he taught a lot about finances and money in a really healthy way. And when people would bring up this um, topic to him, like why do you teach on this when it's been so perverted and abused? He would say, well, there's been a lot of false teaching about heaven, but I still plan to go there, right? Uh, it's not that when something has been abused or perverted, we completely ignore it or put it on the shelf. We actually dig deeper and lean in to try to figure out what's really going on. It's like when you pass by a mirror that makes you look strange and you pause to see. Am I noticing this correctly? Like, does my hair really look like that? <laughs> so with that disclaimer in mind, let's, let's dig into the text this morning, starting with the first couple of verses, uh, verse four and five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So I just kind of want to break this down like piece by piece in this section. Who overcomes the world according to this verse? Everyone born of God. Everyone born of God, right? Not some people born of God, but everyone born of God, which also means not any people not born of God. It's everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is a specific group of people, those born of God. So what do we know about them? What qualifies or identifies somebody as one who is born of God? Well, John gives us three markers. You guys already went over it in your series. Uh, there's three things that identify those who are born of God. To believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah or the Son of God, interchangeable language, that he's the one that saves the world. He is God in the flesh to love God and obey his commandments, and to love one another. Like, this is what 1 John has already covered. If you're born of God, this is what your life looks like. Belief in Jesus is Messiah, love God and obey his commandments, and love one another. Those are the defining characteristics of those born of God. This is how you know that someone is a part of the family, the group of everyone who will overcome the world. And this all flows from and is modeled by the Trinity, which we'll get into in a little bit. So that person, born of God, is the one who overcomes or conquers the world. Now, this word for overcome, some translations will say conquer. It's Nike. It, it literally, it's the just do it, like Nike, like the, you know, uh, the Greek goddess of victory. Um, it's a word that means to have victory over. To have victory over. Victory over what? What does it say? The world. Right? This is John's and Jesus' language, that we, the way that they talk about the fallen, broken systems all around us, the cosmic reality and what it looks like without Christ. The world symbolizes the way of being outside of submission to Jesus. If you're going to live your life apart from him, if you're not going to submit yourself to him, it will ultimately mean submission to ourselves and our own definition of what's right and wrong, to the devil who controls all the things happening behind the scenes that make this world so fallen and broken, or to what John will later call in the book of Revelation, Babylon, like the sort of self-aggrandizing cities that we make that are like full of our own power and love for ourselves and love for money and wealth and sex and all those things. Like if you're not submitting to Jesus, you're going to be submitting to the world, which contains and is run by all of those things. So the kind of person who has victory over the world is a person who demonstrates triune love. We make, we're tracking on that part, right? Yeah. Now, John says, essentially, when he, when he says this is the person who has victory, he says, hey, church, you're in a war, but the kinds of weapons at our disposal, 
the kinds of weapons that tear down demonic strongholds and imperial evil empires, they're rooted in love. They're not bombs and guns and it's, it's, it's love. It's loving God, obeying him, loving one another. It's, it's a completely different way of engaging with reality. Uh, my algorithm, I don't know about your algorithm, but my algorithm uh, is a really special place, honestly. It, it gives me all kinds of things. I get uh, anime-like references, anime references where they're like, it's like Goku, but if he was black and grew up in the hood. Like, I get, like, that kind of stuff. I get a lot of mom content um, from Candace and just, like, why gentle parenting is dumb. No, um, I get, like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I get a lot of, uh, it's a personal thing. I repent, okay? Um, it gives me all sorts of stuff. But one of the things that I was getting like a few months ago was this, this clip of this staff sergeant uh, in the army. Maybe you guys have seen this. He was receiving the Medal of Honor and it was this clip of him giving a speech, but in the speech it was like under, like undergirded, I guess, there was this instrumental, like this trap instrumental. It's like really intense, like beat building up. And it's super, he's just like talking about how dope the US military is. And, and it ends with this line, like he, it's, this is what he's talking about. He's so confident in military, American military might, that he says, you know, he's building this thing up and he says, we don't want war, but we know war. And if you want war, he's talking to all the enemies of the US, I can promise you this. Someone else will raise your sons and daughters. And then the beat drops and it just like goes, it's super intense, right? It's super duper intense. And it kept popping up over and over and over again. Um, and that might feel strange to us in this room, but in some ways it's, it's to be expected, isn't it? Like if you want to win a war, let alone to conquer the world, you're going to need to have the most power at your disposal and the freedom to use it to crush your enemies, right? That's the general way the world thinks about power. I haven't seen uh, Oppenheimer yet, unfortunately, but that's the core issue at the heart of this film, right? It's this race to create the atomic bomb, to, to be the most powerful nation so that uh, hopefully you can use it not so you can protect yourself and so you can avoid being conquered by an enemy who is stronger than you. This is the reality, the moral questions that we deal with in our lives. And again, it makes sense. I mean, imagine if the top general uh, in the US military got on TV and said, like a reporter asked him a question like, what is your strategy to protect the United States against uh, Russia or threats foreign and domestic? And he just got up there straight faced and said, you know, we've been thinking about this a lot. And my, my years of military training have led me to this moment. I, I think, number one, we're gonna love one another. Um, and we're just gonna get really, really good at taking care of one another uh, in this room and in this space. Um, we're gonna obey God and follow his commandments. Like we're just gonna try to submit ourselves to the way of Jesus. And, and honestly, if I can be honest, ma'am, I, I think we're called to love our enemies. And so uh, no matter how much they come after us, I think we're just, we're just gonna have to love them. Um, in return, and, and, and that is the bulletproof strategy for how we are gonna defend and protect the United States of America. They'd be laughed off the stage, you know what I mean? Like, it's good for us Christians, but it, it, it wouldn't make sense. People would be insecure, feeling unself, uh, unsafe, but in a way, this is exactly what John is saying here. He's saying that those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God evidenced by the way they love one another and submit themselves to Jesus' teachings and commandments, those are the people who are going to conquer the world. That's deep. 
So in that context, what does it mean to overcome or to conquer or to have victory over? Is he talking about modern day crusades or political power grabbing? No, he can't be, right? The world isn't people as much as it's the systems and spirits and assumptions that animate and empower people. That's why Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world when he was arrested by Pontius Pilate. If it were, my disciples would come bearing arms. He said that on his way to the cross. Not only to die for our sins and the sins of those who believe, but to die for the sins of the people who were handing him over to be crucified to die for the imperial enemy who had crushed his people and was going to give the order to have him hung. So it can't be violence and political coups and gaining imperial power because that's not what Jesus modeled. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I just want to put this out here. It can be a really, really good and healthy thing for Christians to be in government and to shape policies and to help people. Like, especially if you're called and gifted in that area. But if you think that that's the way you're going to overcome the systems of this world, like if your ultimate hope lies in a specific policy or power or person other than Jesus, you are setting yourself up for a really big letdown. I'm, uh, I'm planting in an uh, election year next year, so I'm practicing, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to bring us all together. Uh, No, that's not how you win the war. Biblically, the way those born of God conquer is by following the way that Jesus conquers, through leading cross-shaped lives that love enemies, outsiders, and friends, even when it costs us. That's what victory looks like. That's the way to overcome the world. John calls the church those born of God, and if we are born of God, we will be like him because you can only reproduce what you are. Orange trees bear oranges, apple trees bear apples, God is life, light, and love, the Bible says. And if we are born of him, we must be and become life, light, and love as well. We can't say we're born of him and not be those things. And then we lay our lives down for others because we know on the other side of sacrifice is not only life for us, but the resurrection power to transform others into life, light, and love as well. That's what we just sung about this morning. Amen? So practically then, what is this kind of overcoming modeled in the way of Jesus look like? There's a lot I think that we could talk about, but I just want to share two things before moving on to the next point. Overcoming practically looks like personal holiness and perseverance. Overcoming as those born of God looks like personal holiness and perseverance. Overcoming the world looks like personal holiness because intimacy leads to obedience, right? Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commands, right? If you love me, keep my commands. If we believe in the Son of God, we do what he says. That's a marker of our identity. Now, originally, this meant the willingness to be martyred if necessary, like to follow Jesus and keep your faith in him, even if it cost you your life. While that's not our experience in this room, in this country today, many of our brothers and sisters around the world still do experience that. That is the cost of following Jesus. Uh, their, their, Their intimacy with him, their knowledge of him, their relationship with him is costly. Saying yes to him means saying no to the world in real consequential ways. But even though that's not the case for us, we're not let off the hook. 
As one scholar says, those who have conquered the world have risen above it so that it no longer taints or influences, much less determines them. They have successfully fulfilled 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so even though you might not have to lay your life physically down for Christ, let me ask you, do you still love the world and the things of this world? Is your intimacy with him shaping your heart so that you desire what he desires and do what he says to do? Or are you still desiring some other things and, and allowing those things to lead and guide you? That could look like a lot of things in our day and age, but just three to point out that are kind of easy here for us in San Diego. Are you still a product of hookup culture? Or are you rejecting hookup culture for faithful obedience to Jesus? Are you still centering your life on money and just trying to make the most that you can and get a cushy, secure life? Or are you rejecting centering your life on money in order to sacrificially live, serve, and love Jesus, to center yourself on him? Are you still caught up in this notion of false political messiahs? If only this person gets in, or if only this person does that, everything will be well. Or do you reject false political messiahs and center yourself on the one who is king of kings and lord of lords and has authority over all? A life of overcoming looks like continued faithful obedience to Jesus in a world that rejects him. Number two, overcoming the world looks like perseverance. This is intense. This is where I spent the most time going back and forth with myself this morning because, you know, I'm a charismatic person. I come from like a more Pentecostal background. I've seen God do some incredible, incredible things. I believe God heals bodies and literally raises the dead. Like I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that broken marriages have the hope of restoration and that folks facing a call to singleness have hope for real family and inclusion and that those coming out of some of the most messed up traumas that you could never even imagine can be made whole and restored and find life, not just in the life to come, but now. Like, it's not a matter of uh, if you will be healed, but when you will be healed. It's not a matter of if you will be made whole, but how long until you experience it. And my conviction is that if you're going to stand up here and look people in the eyes and not be able to say that to them honestly, like you believe that there is hope for them, you shouldn't be doing ministry. You have to be able, to, like, why else would I be up here if I didn't believe Jesus could actually tangibly, practically change and alter the course of your life, right? I'm just wasting, I'm just talking. I believe that he can do it that he loves to do it. It's his desire and his will to do it. However, I've been following Jesus for 13 years now. Some of you guys in this room have followed him longer than me. You've experienced letdown. You've experienced disappointment. You've experienced misplaced expectations and still had to wrestle with your faith and what victory in Christ means. You might have realized that our faith can never be in a particular thing happening the way we want it to happen or in the time frame that we desire. See, the victorious life is not a life without sorrows. That's the lie that we get fed by kind of pop Christianity. That if you just believe enough or if you just do enough, your life is going to be good without sorrow and pain. But that's the opposite of what Jesus said. Scripture is clear that there's things we're not fully going to understand until we get home. Some whys and some questions that, we won't really, that won't really melt away until we meet him face to face and embrace him and experience that love that washes us clean. But Jesus himself promised us that we will have troubles in this world. 
He said, I have told you these things, talking to his disciples. This, it's not up there. John, John 16, if you want the reference. John 16, 33. He said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. Somebody say peace. Peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble. Directly from the mouth of Jesus. But what are his next words? Take heart, because I have overcome the world. Same word, victory over conquer, overcoming. Our faith isn't in anything other than the one who already overcame the world. Everything else is going to let us down, but if we put our trust and our faith in him, we will never be let down or left out to dry. Belief in Jesus as the son of God is faith that all things can be made right now and will be made right in the end. It's like, even if we don't see it right now, I know that he can do it. I know that he will do it because he said he would, and he is true. He keeps his promises. Now, it's rooted in like the most miraculous miracle of all times, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? There was an empty cross three days later. A marker of faith, of true faith in Jesus it's not rooted in pretty words. It's not rooted in anything other than the testimony of God, which we're about to get into. But a marker of true faith in Jesus is endurance to the end. It's perseverance. It's keeping your faith through tragedy, disappointment, and trauma. And this is really, really hard. Like yesterday, I was trying to put in a, um, a screen door. <sighs> it's not funny. <laughs> it, it's really, it took me everything I had. <laughs> to endure to the end of that task. <laughs> I should have called you, John. Like, honestly, like, I, it was tough, man. I was mean to Candace. I repent again. It was, let alone, the things that we face in life are really ridiculous and hard, let alone, like, the intense things and trying to maintain our faith in Jesus in the midst of the absurdity of life, in the midst of what the writer of Ecclesiastes calls hevel, right? Vanity of vanity, everything is vain. That word can be translated absurd. That's like a big thing for me now because it's like some things just don't make sense. But faith in Jesus is true. Jesus really died on the cross for my sins. Jesus really rose from the grave. He really is coming back to make that picture we saw of heaven and earth one again, union and unity and like divine fellowship. That is the end of reality and I'm here for it. And this is important because the language of overcoming, the language of having victory over implies that there are real battles that take place. Like he wouldn't say that you have to overcome if there weren't actual battles that you needed to face. Real resistance that comes, real opposition as you try to cling to the truth of the gospel. So if we're to keep our faith in Jesus until the day we see him face to face, there's going to be ample opportunities to lose our faith and our trust in him, actually. To lose our faith in his power, his presence, and his character. Jesus knows this, and so does John. And so he spends the next several verses building a case for the reliability of his claims of Jesus as the Son of God. Which brings up our next point. Faith in Jesus is built on testimony. Faith or belief in Jesus, hearing what he says, believing it is true in our heart and acting on it, it's not just built on, it's not built on anything less than the most surefire testimony you can imagine. Now, you guys know testimony is bearing witness to or telling others about something that you saw or experienced, right? 
sometimes something happens and you're not so sure it actually happened the way that you thought it did until somebody else comes along and is like, yo, I saw that too, you know? Like that is what happened and they confirm or reaffirm your belief. Or having a witness, having somebody share testimony makes it harder to deny what actually happened, right? Uh, you can't hide what is going on when somebody else saw it too. I'm going to tell a ridiculous story. Uh, when I was in high school, I was not a Christian. You know, I got this, I was sharing about my tattoo earlier. This one says, get money or die broke. Um, <laughs> you know, it's true. <laughs> I was 16. Uh, and so I was just not living a life of the Lord. I was living, in, I was like in the streets and just kind of running around being a little gangster person. And uh, there's one day when my friend, one of my best friends I grew up with, his name's Adam. I texted him about this last night just to confirm that this happened because I wanted to remember correctly. We, were, we had been on the porch and we were um, participating in some activity that we shouldn't have participated in that makes you hungry. And so then we walked to the store to go satisfy that hunger. And on the way to the store, <laughs> this like dog got out and started chasing us and barked and like, you know, we were tough guys. Like we, would, we were 16, we used to fight grown men do this stuff. But this dog that barked at us because of the, the state of our minds in that moment, it really got to us. And so we just took off in other directions. We ran through the middle of the street, almost got hit by cars and then ran back and ran into each other in the middle of the road, like in traffic. And the dog was like behind the fence the whole time. It wasn't even loose. So we had this crazy experience. We go back to his house. We're laughing. We're like, I can't believe this happened. Like, thank God nobody else saw this. Like, it's just going to be between you and I. And in that moment, my cousin Sean calls me. And he's like, man, David, I was just driving down Houston Street. And I saw the craziest thing. <laughs> and he witnessed the whole thing. And like, just never let us live it down, right? Witnessing, it makes it real. <laughs> It makes it undeniable when somebody else has seen it. When there's other eyes on it except your own, you can't hide it. It's like that old phrase says, truth will out. And so there is accountability in witnesses. There is reliability the more witnesses that you have. Amen? That makes sense, right? Now, remember, this, this message, this uh, letter is really like a sermon that John begins. And, and he says, he, he starts this off with, we are telling you what we have touched and seen. It begins with a testimony of, hey, this thing, this person Jesus we're telling you about, we're not just making up stories. I know you're not experiencing everything you want to experience. I know there's questions you have that aren't answered, but we're not just making stuff up. We've seen him with our own eyes. We touched and we handled this person. I saw him go to the cross and I saw him after the cross. He's telling them that the truth about Jesus is based on real experience with Jesus. And this is important because in his church community, there were apparently others who John calls antichrists who were making claims about Jesus' divine and human nature that were based on speculation and lies and not on eyewitness accounts, nor the apostolic tradition. And so John resorts to a legal strategy in his message to argue his case, why you can trust me, why you should believe what I'm saying about having faith in Jesus as the Son of God. He, he wants to show them what really happened. Now, in Jewish law, you need three witnesses in order to prove your case, according to Deuteronomy 19.15. Uh, in American law, you really only need sometimes as few as one witness to be convicted. But in this few, like these next five verses, John calls six witnesses to the stage. He brings six testimonies for the people to see, and the six testimonies should be up on the screen. He calls the water, the blood, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, humans, and then this 
our own selves or our own hearts. And so I want to kind of just walk through these one after the next. Is that all right? I love you guys and I'm glad to be here. I hope that this is a message that is encouraging your soul. All right. Verse six. John says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree, or some translations might say these three are one. So let's just walk through what these are. This would be like the more theological part. The water symbolizes the Spirit or the heavenly life in some regards. Uh, Think about Revelation, at the end of Revelation, where the river of life flows from the city out into all of creation. It flows from New Jerusalem out, and everywhere it goes, there's life happening, and there's these trees with beautiful fruit um, that have many fruits that are coming up. So this, this idea of water symbolizes the spirit. It symbolizes heavenly life. Or think about Jesus' word in John chapter 7, where he says, all who believe in me will have rivers of living water overflowing out of their heart. Like you won't be able to contain the spirit life inside of you. It bubbles up and comes out for all around you to experience. So the spirit has a long tradition. Water has, excuse me, water has a long tradition of representing the spirit. But here it also refers to the baptism of Jesus. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? The Spirit descended on him like a dove. That's how John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the chosen one. It was a marker that he was divine in nature. And that's really good and powerful, amen? We don't serve a God who's only a mere man like us, but he's 100% human and 100% God. That might be hard for people in our day and age to understand sometimes, but the folks back in John's day, they had no trouble believing that part at all. The folks that John was arguing against, they trusted and knew that Jesus was born of the Spirit. What they didn't believe was that he was fully human, precisely because the descent of the Spirit at his baptism. There was this false doctrine that Jesus never really was human or that he only appeared to be human or that he left his humanity behind when the Spirit descended upon him. That's why John is emphatic to say, not by the water only, but also by the blood. The blood represents the flesh, the human nature of Jesus, the beauty of the incarnation. It's also been read historically to refer to the crucifixion, right? So you have the baptism of Jesus where the spirit descends, but the crucifixion of Jesus where he dies for our sins. This is the good news that the blood represents. Not only did God show us what a spirit-filled life looks like in relationship with God, but he died to make that life possible for us. We enter into that life through the wounds in his side, through the blood that he shed on Calvary. He was fully human and fully God. He came down into the middle of our mess with the ultimate message of hope. Hey, I'm right here with you. That's the water and the blood. And then John appeals to the Spirit. And he says the Spirit's not simply a witness of the divine nature of Jesus, but also that he came by the blood, right? You can't say, well, the Spirit came on Jesus, and so uh, that must mean he's not human. No, Hebrews says that it's the Spirit that led Jesus to the cross. The Spirit was with Jesus on the cross in his real suffering. And again, this sounds like some theological stuff, right? Um, But this is really important. 
I, my, when I was in Columbus, Ohio a couple weeks ago, um, my aunt, who has been like a Christian her whole life, uh, shows up in full hijab and she is converted to Islam, right? And so she is a Muslim now. And it's like, I've been watching all these uh, like Muslim apologetics, like Christian and Muslim dialogues. And one of the core beliefs that Muslims have today is that Jesus didn't actually suffer and die on the cross. That we just think that he did, but somehow God took him up and it only appears that he suffered for our sins. So this still is not just an ancient thing. It has real like uh, shelf life, I guess, in religions and in ideas today. Um, so we need to be equipped in order to talk about this stuff. We need to know in our hearts why and how that Jesus was fully human and to have the full assurance and effectiveness of the blood of Jesus on our behalf. And we can trust this account because the spirit is truth, John says, and the truth cannot lie. Now, again, that, that seems like a no-brainer to us, so we might not struggle with how it can be so, but this was a huge deal in the early church, and it's a big deal now in other religions and cultures. We can't reject our earthly selves in pursuit of some idealized spiritual experience. We need to embrace our bodies because the gospel embraces our bodies. If, not, if it were not so, why would Jesus come down in the form of a man? Well, we are in sold bodies. Our spirits and our bodies are inseparable from one another. We are heaven meeting earth. Like Genesis chapter one, spirit breathed on dust. We have both inside of us. And so to attempt to separate them demonstrates a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how reality works. Jesus knew this, which is why he came down in the way that he did. Because his mission, if you remember from that first slide, we were one and in union and unity with him. It was separate. But in his body, that union and unity was restored, and now it will extend through his body to all who are born of God in us and through us to the rest of creation. Overlap, union, faith in Jesus restores the possibility and creates something new. We embrace our bodies and our spirits because Jesus did. One pastor used to say the natural must become supernatural and the supernatural must become natural. They're not this distinct separate space. They're this overlap intersection that we are living proof of and we get to live out for others. There is glory in the mundane stuff of life, changing diapers, washing dishes, working in your vocation that might not be some ministry platform. There's glory in that. There's heaven in that. And there's also like earth and human flesh in the glorious things of God. Dan's just a guy. Shua is an amazing worship leader who brings heaven to earth, and he is also a mere mortal like the rest of us, you know? Like, it's, we're humans. We're trying to figure it out. We're tapping into heaven. We're trying to fuse and experience what it means for this divine miracle, this, to experience the incarnation and, and the, the union of heaven and earth in our very bodies. In fact, who we are as a church is directly related to receiving this testimony. So the other passages that should come to your minds when you hear the water and the blood when talking about Jesus should be the scene in John's gospel where Jesus is pierced in his side by a soldier's spear and water and blood flow out of it. Now, some of you guys, and should I say some of you ladies, maybe more particularly, what else happens when water and blood comes out? Like what bodily function involves water and blood simultaneously? 
Birth. There's a lot of blank stares from the young men in the room. Um, what are you talking about? Birth. Birth. There's a long history and tradition of accepting the cross as the birth of the church. Uh, look at this image up here that we have on the screen. This comes from uh, an old French like, book that I can't really pronounce from like the 1400s. And up top, you have uh, God taking Eve out of Adam's rib. But below that, you have God the Father taking the church out of the rib of Jesus. Yeah, it's deep, dude. Um, the atonement is many things, right? It's Christ dying for our sins. It's uh, him empowering us to live like him. But it is also the labor of God. The work of the cross is the labor of love, of what he did to born us and to make us like him, to make us one with him. God is light, life, and love, and he created a new people through his own body that would be light, life, and love as well. Amen? And so when we embrace the glorious role of our bodies in God's design, those who are born of God are born of the cross, we tap into or accept that we are a new community of restored humanity. That we are a new community that is one with God and has the ability to grow in our experience of that the same way that Jesus was one with God. The water and the blood and the spirit testify. Without the crucifixion of Jesus, there is no us. No human life with God is possible. So after dealing with this dangerous misrepresentation of Jesus at a theological level, dealing with the, uh, the so-called like proto-docetists in his day, those who were denying Jesus' humanity, John doubles down on this witness thing, and he gets even more practical. He said, hey, if that's too heady for you, how about this? He introduces the testimony of humans, of God, and our own hearts. Let's look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men or humans, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God is born concerning his son. So John is saying, hey, human testimony is important. I'm telling you what I saw with my own eyes, and you trust that the apostles who have spoken at this church and the other people who have shared the faith about what they saw in Jesus, they're telling you trustworthy and true things. I mean, how many of you guys in this room know somebody who, like, you've been a witness to God's work in their life? They used to be one way, and now they are another, and you can like see that as a proof of God's existence. Do you have friends or family members like that? Yeah. How many of you guys know that about your own life, right? You know that your life can be a witness to somebody else. It can be a testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. If you love one another, love God and obey his commands, and believe that Jesus is the son of God, he can grow this thing inside of you. So he's saying, hey, look, human testimony will preach, but I'll give you one better. What about the testimony of God? It's all throughout the Synoptic Gospels. There's three times where God speaks about Jesus and he says, this is my beloved son. And then he says something really interesting. Listen to him. Luke 9, 35, if you want the reference. So not only does the spirit testify to Jesus as the son of God, but the father testifies to Jesus as the son of God in an audible voice that other people also heard. And so John says, hey, if you disagree with my testimony, how are you going to disagree with God's testimony about Jesus? You're going to make God a liar? And this is super interesting because you would think that 
hearing God speak would do the trick for a lot of people, right? Like how many of you guys right now have that one thing, if God just spoke to you and you heard it audibly, you'd be like, oh, I'm, it's easy. I'll move to, you know, wherever. I'll, here's my whole life. You know what I mean? Because I, I know that I know that I heard you. If he just opened the heavens right now, I was like, hey, this is my beloved church. Go here, you know, <laughs> like whatever. You'd be like, okay, I'm where I'm supposed to be. But that's not exactly how it works. Uh, at Park Hill, we were finishing up this series on Shema, hearing God's voice, and we preached on one of these passages, Evan preached on it, where uh, in John chapter 12, Jesus speaks to the Father, says, Father, glorify your name, and then God speaks back. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it, and there's all these people around who hear God say this, but they don't say, oh, snap, Jesus is the Messiah. What do they say? It was thunder. Or some people say, oh, I was just an angel that spoke to him. It's like even when God shows up in powerful, profound ways, we are still prone to wander, to misinterpret, to, miss, uh, to mishear what he is saying, right? We can ignore or misunderstand God's voice, and yet that's not the only thing that speaks. God speaks, the Spirit speaks, the water and the blood speak, humans speak, all of them together. And then lastly, he says, but your own heart speaks within your chest, doesn't it? He makes it personal. See, when we believe, we become witnesses to who Jesus is. We become witnesses to who he is and what he's done in our life through victory and personal transformation and watching the way we've grown and experiencing God move on our behalf. He says, when you believe, you also have the testimony, that knowing in your heart that Jesus is who he claims to be. He says, it's not that alone because our feelings are fickle, right? We change our minds about things. We can't even trust our own heart sometimes. So he includes like these five other witnesses. There's a lot that we can lean back on whenever we're not experiencing this in our own heart. But he says personal conviction and growth are deeply important to experiencing and trusting and knowing that God is who he says he is. And you know this, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you know what I'm talking about. You can look back on your life and mark the moments where you felt so near to God and there were miracles that happened, maybe outward, but, but even inward, you know, where God spoke to you in those special ways that only you understand and, and you've obeyed him and you saw how it transformed and changed your life. You might not be good at that. I'm terrible at seeing my own growth through like the past. I still feel like the 20-year-old that I was when I first got saved. And so I have community, my wife and friends that say, oh, wow, you've grown so much. We need that um, as well. But we also have the testimony of Jesus inside of us. So there's six witnesses, the spirit, the water, the blood, the father, humans, and our own hearts. They're all in agreement. And so we have to ask, does John prove his case? Like he says, they all agree that Jesus is the son of God. And you might be in this room like, maybe, what is that all for? Why does that matter, right? What's the so what of that? What does that mean for me today? Why is that important? Like, why does he go through this painstaking theological exercise to make this plain? Well, Because belief in Jesus is the only thing that grants us eternal life. Faith in Jesus grants us eternal life. All of these witnesses are pointing to something significant and consequential. 
to an urgent truth that John wants his community to know, especially with these antichrists and false teachers running around sharing a false gospel and misrepresenting Jesus. He says, the fact that Jesus is the son of God, it's not just for those who believe and are born of God, but it's also for those who are not. And then he hits them with the kind of punchline of it all. Verse 11, this is the testimony that they all agree about, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John ends this passage and almost this whole letter with this appeal that is a deeply personal reminder, but also a missional call to action. He says, we need to be reminded that you and I have no life apart from and outside of the son of God. Anywhere we try to seek life, apart from and outside of the Son of God, any idols that we make for ourselves, what Jeremiah calls these, these wells that we dig for ourselves, they will run dry. They will let us down. They will lead to brokenness and pain and despair. It is only in the Son that we have life. Now, maybe if you grew up in the church, it's hard for you to imagine that. I have a friend who I've been talking to the last couple of weeks who, who grew up in the church. He has a special calling to singleness, and he's curious, though, about what all the world has to offer. He finds himself struggling like, is this just what I grew up in and what I know? Like, is it something better for me out there? And, and I try to talk to him and be empathetic and listen. Yeah, I understand, you know, that you haven't experienced some of these things, but I try to give him a loving warning. I'm like, hey, you can go down that path if you want to, but at the end, you're gonna find a dead end. At the end, you're gonna find a well that runs dry. You're gonna come back empty and unsatisfied because there is no life apart from the sun. It's not a harsh judgment, but a loving warning. Those who have the sun have life, and those who don't have the sun don't have life. It simply doesn't get any clearer than this. And we don't do our friends or our loved ones any favors when we pretend the scripture is unclear. You know, there's always ways for us to improve in kindness and clarity and communicating the gospel. There's always ways for us to listen and learn and go deep with people and develop relationship with them and then give them that truth out of a place of love and genuine concern for their heart, no agenda, but having them experience true life. But we also do folks a deep disservice when we act like this truth is not black and white. And I don't say that lightly. I'm a pretty fundamental person by nature, and I've had to grow in exploring the gray and embracing the mysteries and embracing the things that, like, there's so much wiggle room on. And, you know, like, there's so much that just, like, you know, yeah, it could be this, it could be that. There's room for us to all be at the table and have different beliefs about certain things. My nature is hard for me to accept the beauty of mystery. I'm an Enneagram one. You know, the dishes should be facing this way and not that way. Um, we have a knife cup in our house, and we shouldn't have a knife cup. We should have a chopping block that the knives go into. But, you know, stuff like that, you know what I mean? That doesn't make sense. Don't matter at all. Uh, we got the chopping block now as an act of love. I, 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 am, I had to grow in this area. But the truth is there's some truth that's just not up for grabs. Some dogma is good dogma because it's real and it actually defines reality. And it really doesn't get much realer than this. This is the core of the gospel. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That doesn't mean folks can't be moral or decent or loving or honorable, but it does mean that they don't have life. Eternal life, life forever with God. 
Now we're fallen creatures in a fallen world and the church, we're not gonna live this out perfectly, but each of us in this room has to sort of reckon with and wrestle with that fact. And if that is something that you struggle with, Dan is an amazing pastor. He would love to walk through this with you in scripture and love and pastoral relationship. I know you guys have amazing pastors here, but I can tell you, you can go down that road and if you're trying to live your life in submission to the scriptures, loving God and one another, believing that Jesus is the son of God and obeying his teachings, you're just not gonna, this truth isn't gonna change. We're not doing anybody any favors if we pretend that it will, but it's not the end of the story. See, whoever doesn't have the son doesn't have life. Whoever has the son has life, and this is the reason that the mission of God is so important. People in your life need to encounter the good news of the gospel for salvation through the eternal life that you already have. Uh, The church's corporate and personal growth in Jesus, us experiencing the rivers of living water that flow out of our lives, starts now. It's not just one day we're going to go to heaven. It's now we're choosing to embrace all that God has for us, and he's extending that life in us, through us, to all those around us. Imagine you're just sitting under a waterfall, and you're this cup, and the, the water just goes out of you and runs overflows and everyone around you starts to get wet. That's the call of the Christian life. That's the good news of the gospel going through us to others. That's what happens when we love like Jesus love. We're willing to lay down everything for those that we love. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it was fun. The Bible says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. You and I getting to know him, having the son, and having eternal life. And if we are light, life, and love, like God is light, life, and love, if we're born of him, we are going to lay our lives down for others to experience this goodness as well. Amen? See, eternal life is exclusive, but it was never meant to be a secret. Jesus said those born of God will have rivers of living water flowing out of us. We are called to fill the world with eternal life through him. So we have to become the kind of community that John envisions, Jesus envisions, God envisions, and the Spirit envisions. We need to demonstrate new life daily to one another and ourselves. We need to give ourselves fully to becoming the place where despite the questions or struggles someone has, our love for one another is a witness to this verse being true. Our obedience to Jesus is a witness to this verse being true. And the the sucky part is, we're never going to be perfect at this. It's not going to happen perfectly until the last day when we see him face to face. But the glorious and hopeful part is that by the power of the Spirit, we can be a better image of the Trinity of God's love that the world has ever seen. You know, in the pre-gathering prayer, we were talking about how People are just hungry in this world and they'll take anything. They'll settle for any crumbs. They'll settle for any ideology. They'll settle for anything that feels real and true and good and beautiful. And yet we're the only ones that have it. People are hungry and starving. People are thirsty and we're the ones with bread and cup. Amen. And so how do we do this? How do we respond? Uh, Shul, you can come up if you want. Jesus is the son of God. Ultimately, we can trust the truth of the gospel because of the victory that we have in him, because of the testimony of the witnesses, and because of the story that doesn't end on the cross, because it comes through us, through our lives, and extends 
to others. The resurrection life that Jesus gave us is here and now going to others. And so how do we respond to a message like this? Simply, let's pray and let's run. Pray for faith. Pray for faith in Jesus as he truly is, that you can see Jesus as the son of God, that you would believe who he is if there's doubt in your heart, right? We're not a faith of having it all together. We're a faith that says, I believe, help my unbelief. So if you need more faith, ask. And the, the heavenly father will gladly give the Holy Spirit to all those who ask. So let's pray for faith if that's you this morning. Secondly, let's pray for victory. Life is really, really, really hard like way harder than putting in a screen door, (laughs) you know? And yet we have this crazy promise that we will overcome by believing that Jesus is the son of God. Today is the day to bring every heavy situation to the foot of the cross. Whether you need healing in your body, whether you have a family member that is going through something, whether you are personally experiencing pain and trauma and trial, let's pray that God would bring victory in that space in your life. Lean into your brothers and sisters. Maybe that looks like laying it down uh, at the foot of the cross while we worship, or maybe it looks like having somebody next to you pray for you, just confessing what you're going through and inviting them into your situation. But don't leave here today thinking you gotta fight your battle on your own and that you're in any battle that is unwinnable, amen? Every battle is possible to be, 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 have victory over in Jesus. And so when we're done praying, let's run. Let's run after the lost, right? The 99. We have a faith, a God who left all of heaven to come down to a fallen, broken planet to save the people who rejected him. We have a God who leaves the 99 to go after the one person, the one sheep that has left the fold. God gave up his life to extend his life to others, and he did it joyfully. And so those born of God do this too. We don't just sit here in our pool with our river of living water, just getting everybody like wet around us that already believes what we believe. We go out and take that life to those who do not have it. Everybody in this room has somebody that they can pray for daily, weekly, monthly that doesn't know Jesus and that they can be faith forward with, that they can bring the truth of the gospel into that relationship in a way that the spirit will give you guidance. And then finally, if if this applies to you, run back home. Uh, Maybe you haven't been obeying the teachings of Jesus. Maybe you believe that he is God, but your actions haven't said that. You wandered away like the prodigal son. Um, Run back home. We have a God who's waiting on the porch for you. And the moment you take a step back towards him, the moment you realize that you haven't been satisfied by these empty vessels, these empty wells that run dry and this life that you think is better apart from him, the moment you turn back from the pigsty and start to come home, he jumps off the porch and runs towards you full force, gives you a hug, puts a robe on your back, calls you a son or daughter and throws a party for you. Uh, The Bible actually teaches that angels in heaven dance whenever a lost one comes home. It's not just for those who don't know Jesus, it's for us in this room who have distanced ourselves from him as well. So let's pray for faith, pray for victory. Run after the lost and run back home today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this room, for every story represented here, for every heart that you desire to know. We'll never meet a person in our life that you don't desire to know and have intimate relationship with. And all of us can always experience more of you no matter how long we've been saved. I pray that this this message, this word, I know it's kind of like theological at parts. I pray that it would 
touch the hearts that it's designed to touch and that you would call each of us to love one another, to love and obey you, and to place our faith afresh in Jesus as the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.